Shatila Refugee Camp is a four-part documentary series that examines some of the core political and social issues affecting Palestinian refugees in the Lebanon. Beirut, the capital of the Lebanon, once known as the Paris of the Middle East, is now more widely recognised for its massive influx of displaced people from Palestine, Iraq, Syria and Kurdistan. The country is under a huge amount of political and economic pressure as it is now host to the largest population of refugees globally. I went to Shatila refugee camp to meet with some Irish volunteers, an Irish NGO based in Beirut, community workers, Palestinian refugees and political organisations within the camp to discuss what life is like in Shatila refugee camp. In today's programme, we'll be taking an in-depth look at the Sabra Shatila massacre in 1982. I'll be speaking with James Bone, who'll be giving us a historical backdrop to the events leading up to the massacre. We'll also be listening to an eyewitness account of the event, and Dr Franklin Lamb will give us a walking tour of the area in which the massacre took place. On Saturday, the 22nd of November 1947, an initial vote was taken in the United Nations as to whether or not the, uh, there would be support for this proposed partition of Palestine. And it was turned down. At that stage, the Zionist lobby in the United States decided to, to up its pressure somewhat. And it also uh, got President Truman, who needed the support of the Zionist lobby because he was, he, he was going to be running for re-election in less than a year. And he wanted the Jewish vote in the United States. So the Zionist lobby plus President Truman tried to convince several, several of the countries in the, in the United Nations who had voted against the idea of partition to change their minds. A second vote was held the following Wednesday. Surprisingly, partition was turned down. Oh, I'm not saying surprisingly, but you might be surprised. Partition was turned down a second time. And this time, the vote was even more strongly against partition than it had been the following Saturday. The final vote was meant to be taken that Wednesday afternoon, but the United States delegate to the United Nations pointed out that the following day, Thursday, was the last Thursday in November, and you may or may not know this, but the last Thursday in November is Thanksgiving, our public holiday in the United States. And so the United States delegate said that he suggested that everybody was tired and that the final vote and partition should actually be postponed until after the holiday. And the holiday was going to be the next day, Thursday, Thanksgiving, and um, also the following day, Friday. So the next time the United Nations General Assembly would meet was on the following Saturday, the 29th of November. And then the Zionist lobby went into overdrive. There are several interesting publications on what happened in the course of, of those few days. Well, for example, at the time, the, you may remember that the economy in Western Europe was in dire straits after the Second World War. The Marshall Plan had been proposed to give financial aid from the United States to, to Europe to reconstruct. And several people in the White House associated with Truman, and they were Zionists because they, they were Zionist American Jews, they actually put pressure on the French uh, delegate in the United Nations 
saying that unless France did its bit to actually uh, ensure that the vote was passed, that martial aid for France would be withdrawn, or at least significantly cut back. France? Yes? Pressure of a similar nature was put on other countries. But there were six especially weak countries that were targeted by the Zionists. One was Greece, which was good. In fact, Greece was the only country that actually resisted the pressure to change its vote. Greece? No? Haiti? Yes? Haiti was another country. You know, Haiti is still poor. Haiti was poor then. Haiti was told that unless it actually towed the line, its economic situation would, be, would deteriorate further. So Haiti buckled under the pressure and decided to change its vote. Liberia was a, was a particularly egregious example. The Liberian economy at the time depended on rubber plantations, and the rubber plantations were actually largely owned by one American corporation, led by a, which was headed by a guy called Harvey Firestone. And acting on Zionist suggestions, Harvey Firestone approached the Liberian government and told them that unless they changed their vote in favour of partition in Palestine, that he, Firestone, would have to review his rubber plantation operations in, in Liberia, essentially destroying the Liberian economy. So they towed the line. China, which was at the time a very weak country because it was actually, China was actually in the middle of a civil war. The communists who eventually won the civil war were fighting against the Guomindang government led by Chiang Kai-shek. And China had initially uh, not supported partition. And again, it was also pressurized to change its vote because it was a very weak country at the time and needed American support. So there were, there were six uh, countries that were, even though many countries were targeted, there were six main countries that were targeted as um, likely countries to, to change their, their vote. And of those six countries, five of them changed their votes. The only one that didn't change his vote was Greece. You all know how to vote. Those who are in favor will say yes, those who are against will say no. And the abstainers always, they, they know what to say. One of the countries that did change his vote was the Philippines. Philippine ambassador to the, um, to the United Nations was so disgusted at what happened that he wrote a chapter about it in his autobiography. But he uh, wrote with disgust about how he had actually, uh, acting in, in uh, accordance with his government policy, had made a very strong speech against partition on, on that Wednesday that we talked about, talking about how he couldn't understand. Remember, Philippines was actually had, until recently, the Philippines had, until 1946, been uh, an American colony. In his speech on that Wednesday, Romulo had said that he could not understand in the age of decolonization that there was now a proposal to actually essentially create a, a new colony in Palestine and that in an age when people were saying that religious discrimination should not be the basis for running a state that it was proposed to, to, uh, to create a, a, religion, a state based on, on religion. The United Kingdom, abstain. The United States, yes. After that second vote, there were several days of politicking. Five countries were actually convinced, five very weak countries were convinced to change their vote by the kind of pressure I've just illustrated to you. And on Saturday the 29th of November, a vote to support partition was passed by the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, but it's important to remember 
that that vote had no standing on, you know, under international law. It was simply a, a recommendation. It was just simply like saying, oh, we think we, we like the notion of Palestine to be, to be partitioned. But then, within a matter of days, David Ben-Gurion, who was head of the Jewish agency in, pa- in Palestine, issued call-up of all military-age Jews. All military-age Jews in Palestine were ordered. This order, by the way, had no official standing under law because Britain was still supposed to be ruling Palestine. But David Ben-Gurion issued a call for all military-age Jews in Palestine to register for military service. And, and almost immediately, fighting broke out in Palestine. So here we have a situation where Britain is still supposed to be ruling Palestine. Jews are roughly a third of, of the population of Palestine. As a result of back-channel political pressure, the United Nations General Assembly had passed a recommendation, which had no standing under international law, to partition Palestine into two states, giving 56% of Palestine to, to the Jews, who only numbered one-third of the population. And uh, the Arabs in Palestine said, this is unfair, and it ought to be unfair to anybody. And small-scale fighting broke out within the course of a matter of days. But within less than a month, some villages, some Palestinian villages around, around Jaffa on the coast had actually been ethnically cleansed. But then, anyhow, in, in the early part of 1948, January or February, um, Jewish terrorism against Palestinians started to pick up. Uh, there was, I think it was toward the end of January '48, the Semiramis Hotel in West Jerusalem, which was a, an Arab-owned hotel in Jerusalem, was blown up, for example. So there was small-scale fighting in December 47, January 48, February 48, March 48. Early March 48, the Zionist movement, uh, which had all the while actually been using those uh, thousands of men who had experience in the British Army in the Second World War, had been using them to train a much larger force. The Haganah leadership uh, conceived a plan called Plan Dalet, which was a plan for ethnically cleansing roughly three-quarters of Palestine. British Britain is still supposedly ruling Palestine at the time. So this, was, this, this was a plan made for ethnically cleansing most of Palestine, made by the Haganah. In, throughout the early months of January, February, March of 1948, the Zionists had actually been purchasing arms, wherever they could get them, in North America and in Europe. They had particular success in buying arms in Eastern Europe because Stalin had the idea of using... Stalin knew that there were many communists amongst the Jews in Palestine and hoped that these would actually enable the creation of a, of a, of a pro-Soviet state in, in, uh, in Palestine, in the Middle East, which would have the effect of undermining the British Empire in the Middle East. In March 1948... Planes carrying arms from Czechoslovakia landed secretly at night in Palestine, bringing arms for the, for the Zionists. Britain is still ruling Palestine. A, f- a few days into April 48, a ship carrying a huge consignment of arms, covered under a small cargo of, of potatoes, arrived in the port of Tel Aviv, and those armaments were actually quickly spirited away by Jewish dock workers in Tel Aviv. By the beginning of April 48, 
the Zionists had, as I said, roughly 50,000 trained men, about 5,000 of whom had, were battle-hardened veterans of the Second World War. And they had, in the, matter, in the course of the previous few weeks, been importing arms secretly from the Middle East. And the first fruit of this happened on, I think it was the 9th or 10th of April, when a village just to the west of Jerusalem called Deir Yassin was attacked by Zionist troops and the village was ethnically cleansed and roughly around 100 people were killed. The survivors, including the children, many of whom were children, were actually trucked from Deir Yassin and dumped outside the walls of the old city. The Zionists' uh, underground radio broadcast the announcement of this. This was actually used. In fact, later on, uh, the, uh, a later prime minister of, of um, Israel called Menachem Begin, who came to power in Israel in 1977, who was actually in charge of this attack on Deir Yassin, later on boasted how, in his uh, autobiography how the action taken at Deir Yassin was very effective in uh, forcing, in encouraging the Palestinians to flee, because essentially that action taken in conjunction with the Zionist radio broadcasts, essentially frightened Palestinians. The Zionists said to the Palestinians, see what happened in Deir Yassin, if you hang around, essentially the same thing is going to happen to you. To cut the long story short, Britain officially abandoned Palestine at midnight on the 14th to the 15th of May 1948. But by then, roughly 380,000 Palestinians had been expelled by Zionist troops, if you want to be nice to them, or Zionist terrorists, if you want to recognize them, what, recognize them for what they were, had actually been expelled from their homes in Palestine. So in the last few months of British rule, and particularly in the last six weeks of British rule, from early April 48 until the middle of May 48, roughly 380,000 Palestinians had been pushed from their homes in those parts of Palestine which were targeted for ethnic cleansing by the Zionist movement and worse seemed to be on the cards. The uh, governments of the Arab countries around Palestine had no interest in, in getting involved in Palestine, but their people were outraged at what had been happening in Palestine and demanded that their armies do something to protect the Palestinians. The Arab troops that moved into Palestine only moved into the areas that had been allocated for the Arab state in the partition plan of 1947 and in fact what they were engaged in was an attempt to to preserve for the Palestinian Arabs some part of Palestine and in particular they were uh, attempting to preserve for them those parts of Palestine which had been reserved for them under the partition plan. They weren't very effective at it because as you will remember the partition plan had um, proposed to give 56% of Palestine to to the Jewish state. When the fighting stopped, the fighting sort of trickled to a halt. There were several truces and so on, but the fighting trickled to a halt in early 49. By the time the fighting came to an end in early 49, the Jewish state, if you want to call it that, or at least the area occupied by the, by the, uh, the forces associated with the government created by the Zionist organization, occupied not 56% of Palestine, but 78% of Palestine. And by then, uh, the numbers of Palestinians who had been expelled from their homes had grown from the roughly 380,000 that had been expelled just before the end of British rule in middle of May 1948 
to over 750,000. Well, Israel invaded several times. First of all, as far as I can remember, in 1978, but then a very large-scale Israeli invasion happened in 82, and the Israeli army at that stage uh, went all the way up through Lebanon as far as Beirut, roughly halfway up the country, and occupied Beirut for several months. And there were several large refugee camps in, in the Beirut area, the two most prominent ones that we know today are, are Sabra and Shatila. And uh, the Israeli army, which controlled that part of Beirut, in the middle of September 1982, the Israeli army facilitated a massacre by Christian Lebanese of the largely Muslim Palestinians in the camps at Sabra and Shatila. And at night time, so the camp was surrounded by Israeli troops. The Israelis shone searchlights into the camp from the high buildings surrounding the camp and essentially allowed uh, a Christian Lebanese militia to go in and commit a horrific massacre. This is Franklin Lamb, Professor of International Law and a Middle Eastern expert on the Sabra Shatila massacre. But now you can see the condition. Um, now it's a field again, an athletic field. It went from being a garbage dump to a uh, athletic field for some years, and then they turned it into a memorial. But because there is such a pressure on space, these days in Shatila, which, as you know, has not expanded square footage. You've got so many more Palestinians here now from Yarmouk camp in Syria and other camps, and also Syrian refugees who have come to find uh, cheap housing. Three years ago, a uh, European country donated this. This is new. Actually, it was two years ago. Um, and the Europeans also uh, gave a monument, the Danes, I think it was, on your right, it's fallen into a bad repair, um, but some of the people in those photographs are still here. Um, one of the photographs had to do with this building here, where they lined up and, and killed the Kataib forces, the right-wing Christians. There was so much killing around here, there were about 157 fighters who entered at 11 alleys along here, so in this area, there were a lot of bodies and the, you know, the authorities on that Sunday morning on the 19th, they would drag them and literally, if you've seen from the photos, stack them, uh, spread them with disinfectant uh, white powder. And then they uh, uh, fired up a couple of bulldozers and dug a huge pit. So some suggest that underneath us here, 1,200, no one knows for sure. What happened was there was somber music playing on the on the radio, and we learned that Bashir Jamayel, the uh, newly elected president of Lebanon, had been assassinated. Following that, the next day or two, two days, uh, there was um, a lot of uh, bombardment. There was a lot of loud noises. There was a lot of explosions. The Israeli planes were flying very low over Beirut, over the camps, breaking the sound barrier. 
pregnant women opened up with the blade of the knife and left, and babies killed and thrown uh, into the garbage bin. Remember, the fighters, these militia people who were bent on revenge because on the 14th of September, 48 hours before the start of the massacre, their leader, Bashir Jamal, was assassinated. They blamed the Palestinians. They stoked it, they promoted it. Sharon and Eitan, uh, Rafael Eitan, uh, they created uh, that frenzy. The Americans got wind of it, but the, uh, something was going to happen. But the Israelis said, no, 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 uh, we're under control. And they were under control. They surrounded the area. They allowed the killers in. The slaughter began, but the reason I mentioned about the uh, militia from the east, they didn't know West Beirut, and they certainly didn't know Shatila camp. And they entered along the uh, Aqqa uh, road between Shatila and the then uh, Algerian embassy in 11 different places. Robert Fisk wrote, you may recall, that it was almost daylight in the camp in the middle of the night, and that was in aid of the massacre. We went up to the top floor of the hospital to look out, and there were flares, and after each flare, we heard ta 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 ta. What it was is they were the Israelis gave them flares, and they lit up neighborhoods. And after they lit up the neighborhoods, they shot people. That's what happened. Robert Fitz and Janet Stevens claimed there were two massacres: one late Wednesday through early Sunday, but then one that started Sunday morning until the rest of Sunday, and that took place up here at City Sportif. Why? Because the Zionist forces rounded up survivors and marched them up there to that uh, location, where, which was the joint headquarters of the Lebanese forces and the Israeli army. So Fisk and Janet talked about trucks coming in, with, uh, crammed with men and uh, uh, young men and even some women, loaded on those trucks, but when they came out, there was nobody except a tarp and, and a huddled uh, mound. They were slaughtered in a massacre inside City Sportif, and then they were trucked off. Some buried right down here by the golf course, right down here on the army barracks. Some reportedly taken to East Beirut. Some, been argued, were buried in the mountains, in pits. So the total number, to go to your figure, at least 3,500, either killed here, directly or killed there or made to disappear, which meant death. And the Katayab came on Saturday morning, September the 18th. We were told to come downstairs to the entrance to the hospital. At the entrance to the hospital were uh, a bunch of soldiers with Al-Kawata Lubnania. This is the Lebanese Defense Forces. And we started to march down the main street of the camp, and we saw dead bodies on the side of the street. We saw Palestinian women gathered on either side of the street. Uh, and as we marched, the soldiers got more, they were dirtier, they looked uh, high, like they were on drugs. The fact remains that the full story of much of the massacre is well documented and it's under lock and key somewhere in occupied Palestine because the Zionists know exactly what happened and they took records. The, uh, certain Israeli uh, diplomats have told the Americans that we know the story but we can't release it yet. And, but the fact of the matter is we don't expect them to voluntarily release it because this massacre, and there were, you know, literally two or three score of massacres just between the late 30s and uh, uh, this year by the Zionist forces. Why Sabah Shatila? Why 
is the world not forgetting? Why every year on the anniversary do, do more people of goodwill from around the world come here and pay tribute? The fact of the matter is, is because a part of the reason is it's because it, it's uh, not just its savagery and brutality, but it's methodical planning and attempted cover-ups and facilitations and denials. They told us to take off our lab coats. Some of us had lab coats on. And as we, they had walkie-talkies. They were talking to people on the walkie-talkie. So at the end of the camp, towards the end of the camp, there was an Israeli bulldozer with the letter Aleph. And the bulldozer was going back and forth. It was burying bodies, but I had no idea what it was doing. And um, then there was a bullet-ridden wall on the other side of the street. And there were, there were bullet holes, and there was a wall, and they lined us up against this wall, and they had their rifles ready. And at that point, it was a firing squad, and they were going to kill us. They suddenly put their guns down. The story is, after talking to the Israelis, the Israeli Defense Force was able to see what was going on, and a high-ranking Israeli Defense Force member came running down and stopped it. I am sure that if there were dead Norwegians, Swedes, Americans, British, that it would have been a disaster for Israel. And, uh, okay, so then they, we continued with the phalange up the street, past the Kuwaiti embassy, to uh, an UNRWA courtyard. It was an UNRWA building. Inside the building, on the ground, were uh, newspapers, Israeli Hebrew newspapers, Yehudiot Haranot, and there were cans ready to eat cans with Hebrew writing. That's where the Israeli soldiers had been. Sharon, of course, became prime minister. Uh, Raphael Antan returned uh, as defense minister. Uh, some of his aides did very well. Uh, and it's clear that the Israelis, even today, have their networks here. We see that with certain events, don't we? Um, but nothing like apparently in those days when they flooded this area uh, with agents and the PLO was constantly on edge uh, because there was a special program not just to assassinate people like uh, Abu Hassan Salama, for example, uh, and later Abu Jihad and Iyad and, and, and numbers, but to try to corrupt the Palestinians and create a network of informers. Same thing they're doing in, in, to the best of their ability in uh, occupied Palestine, to get informers. But yes, it's a fact that they had big designs on neutralizing Lebanon, taking it out of the uh, so-called Arab nationalist equation, uh, removing them from the Palestinian cause, um, and that was their goal. They didn't realize all of it, but in some of it, they did, uh, uh, you know, whether or not they were the direct cause of it, uh, of the success, but uh, this is not a happy place uh, politically uh, for Palestinians. Uh, there are those who claim to be the resistance, and then there are those who have never forgiven the Palestinians, and at every opportunity, keep them in the squalor and take concrete measures, even legislative measures, to keep them marginalized and suffering in a kind of revenge. They started to question us one by one. Why did we come to Lebanon? Why did we come to help the Palestinians? They were dirty people. We were communists. They hate the Palestinians. And then we walked a little bit more. And we, I thought it was this terrible thing. They had a, some in a jeep, a young woman, a phalange woman with beautiful yeah. blue eyes. And she saw, she showed, she had a little boy in the jeep. 
and they had shot his finger or something. And look how we treat the Palestinians. And she wrapped his finger. He was terrified. I'm sure he was killed. Then, the, okay, then we walked across the street. Across the street was the Israeli Defense Force. The Israeli Defense Force was located in a, like a five-story building, something like that, on the top, where they could look down on the camps. They had binoculars, walkie-talkies. They knew they could see what was happening in these camps. And uh, then uh, they told us they would drive us wherever we wanted to go. The they, flange were gone. Here we were with the Israelis, with the IDF, completely confused, exhausted. And um, I went in the Jeep and they, I said I wanted to go to the American Embassy, so they dropped me off at the American Embassy. Israel surrounded the camps so that no, none of the Palestinians could get out. They supplied the flares for the phalanges to see neighborhoods so they could do the killing. They uh, were on a walkie-talkie system. They knew what was going on. They could see what was going on. They supplied a bulldozer to bury the bodies. And they knew, they knew, the Israelis knew that the phalange were the sworn enemy of the Palestinians. And that was even in an Israeli newspaper, an article about that. So this, they found them indirectly responsible. This is more than indirect responsibility. It's direct responsibility. And Sharon was found personally responsible. He served no time, and then he became uh, the president, prime minister of Israel. The largest demonstration in Israel's history took place uh, after this massacre, calling for an, is an Israeli commission of inquiry. With the, when the findings of the inquiry came out, which was February, I think, there was a demonstration by the Israelis. Emil Grunswag was a member of Peace Now, or part of the peace organization. He was killed by a right-wing, he was shot by a right-wing Israeli and killed. So he is remembered also. They've never, there's been no apology from the Israelis. That we're, there's been no apology about the Palestinians. We're sorry about what happened in 1948. None of that. And of course the Lebanese are not a whole lot better because the Lebanese were never charged and now the term limits have run out. They will never be charged. And my understanding is that some of them come into this camp on the weekend and shop in the market. I mean, it was what went on inside this camp, the phalange, were running all over the camp, running up to the houses, knocking on doors, pulling people out, sticking the men on one side, taking the women on the other, children crying. I mean, this is a, this is a long, awful story. But we, we will remember. We remember. End of program three.